Section 38 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D section thirty eight chapter forty four part two essex obliged all the rebels of munster either to submit or to fly into the neighbouring provinces but as the irish from the greatness of the queen's preparations had concluded that she intended to reduce them to total subjection or even utterly to exterminate them they considered their defence as a common cause, and the English forces were no sooner withdrawn than the inhabitants of Munster relapsed into rebellion and renewed their confederacy with their other countrymen. The army, meanwhile, by the fatigue of long and tedious marches, and by the influence of the climate, was become sickly, and on its return to Dublin, about the middle of july was surprisingly diminished in number the courage of the soldiers was even much abated for though they had prevailed in some lesser enterprises against lord cahir and others yet they had sometimes met with more stout resistance than they expected from the irish whom they were wont to despise and as they were raw troops and unexperienced, a considerable body of them had been put to flight at the glens by an inferior number of the enemy. Essex was so enraged at this misbehaviour that he cashiered all the officers and decimated the private men. But this act of severity, though necessary, had intimidated the soldiers and increased their aversion to the service. The queen was extremely disgusted when she heard that so considerable a part of the season was consumed in these frivolous enterprises, and was still more surprised that Essex persevered in the same practice which he had so much condemned in others, and which he knew to be so much contrary to her purpose and intention. That nobleman, in order to give his troops leisure to recruit from their sickness and fatigue, left the main army in quarters, and marched with a small body of fifteen hundred men into the county of Offaly against the O'Connors and O'Moores, whom he forced to a submission. But on his return to Dublin he found the army so much diminished that he wrote to the English council an account of its condition and informed them that if he did not immediately receive a reinforcement of two thousand men, it would be impossible for him this season to attempt anything against Tyrone. That there might be no pretense for further inactivity, the Queen immediately sent over the number demanded, and Essex began at last to assemble his forces for the expedition into Ulster. The army was so averse to this enterprise, and so terrified with the reputation of Tyrone, that many of them counterfeited sickness, 
many of them deserted and essex found that after leaving the necessary garrisons he could scarcely lead four thousand men against the rebels he marched however with this small army but was soon sensible that in so advanced a season it would be impossible for him to effect anything against an enemy who though superior in number was determined to avoid every decisive action he hearkened therefore to a message sent him by tyrone who desired a conference and a place near the two camps was appointed for that purpose the generals met without any of their attendants and a river ran between them into which tyrone entered to the depth of his saddle but essex stood on the opposite bank after half an hour's conference where tyrone behaved with great submission to the lord lieutenant a cessation of arms was concluded to the first of may renewable from six weeks to six weeks but which might be broken off by either party upon a fortnight's warning essex also received from tyrone proposals for a peace in which that rebel had inserted many unreasonable and exorbitant conditions and there appeared afterwards some reason to suspect that he had commenced a very unjustifiable correspondence with the enemy so unexpected an issue of an enterprise the greatest and most expensive that elizabeth had ever undertaken provoked her extremely against essex and this disgust was much augmented by other circumstances of that nobleman's conduct he wrote many letters to the queen and council full of peevish and impatient expressions complaining of his enemies lamenting that their calumnies should be believed against him and discovering symptoms of a mind equally haunted and discontented she took care to inform him of her dissatisfaction but commanded him to remain in ireland till further orders essex heard at once of elizabeth's anger and of the promotion of his enemy sir robert cecil to the office of master of the wards an office to which he himself aspired and dreading that if he remained any longer absent the queen would be totally alienated from him he hastily embraced the solution which he knew had once succeeded with the earl of leicester the former favourite of elizabeth leicester being informed while in the low countries that his mistress was extremely displeased with his conduct disobeyed her orders by coming over to england and having pacified her by his presence by his apologies and by his flattery and insinuation disappointed all the expectations of his enemies essex therefore weighing more the similarity of circumstances than the difference of character between himself and leicester immediately set out for england and making speedy journeys he arrived at court before any one was in the least apprised of his intentions though besmeared with dirt and sweat he hastened upstairs to the presence chamber thence to the privy chamber nor stopped till he was in the queen's bedchamber who was newly risen 
and was sitting with her hair about her face. He threw himself on his knees, kissed her hand, and had some private conference with her, where he was so graciously received that on his departure he was heard to express great satisfaction, and to thank God that, though he had suffered much trouble and many storms abroad, he found a sweet calm at home. But this placability of Elizabeth was merely the result of her surprise, and of the momentary satisfaction which she felt on the sudden and unexpected appearance of her favourite. After she had leisure for recollection, all his faults recurred to her, and she thought it necessary by some severe discipline to subdue that haughty, imperious spirit, who, presuming on her partiality, had pretended to domineer in her counsels, to engross all her favour, and to act in the most important affairs without regard to her orders and instructions. When Essex waited on her in the afternoon, he found her extremely altered in her carriage towards him. She ordered him to be confined to his chamber, to be twice examined by the council, and though his answers were calm and submissive, she committed him to the custody of Lord Keeper Edgerton, and held him sequestered from all company, even from that of his countess nor was so much as the intercourse of letters permitted between them. Essex dropped many expressions of humiliation and sorrow, none of resentment. He professed an entire submission to the Queen's will, declared his intention of retiring into the country, and of leading thenceforth a private life remote from courts and business, but though he affected to be so entirely cured of his aspiring ambition, the vexation of this disappointment, and of the triumph gained by his enemies, preyed upon his haughty spirit, and he fell into a distemper which seemed to put his life in danger. The Queen had always declared to all the world, and even to the Earl himself, that the purpose of her severity was to correct, not to ruin him, and when she heard of his sickness, she was not a little alarmed with his situation. She ordered eight physicians of the best reputation and experience to consult of his case, and being informed that the issue was much to be apprehended, she sent Dr. James to him with some broth and desired that physician to deliver him a message, which she probably deemed of still greater virtue, that if she thought such a step consistent with her honour, she would herself pay him a visit. The bystanders who carefully observed her countenance remarked that in pronouncing these words her eyes were suffused with tears. When these symptoms of the Queen's returning affection towards Essex were known, they gave a sensible alarm to the faction which had declared their opposition to him. Sir Walter Raleigh, in particular, the most violent as well as the most ambitious of his enemies, was so affected with the appearance of this sudden revolution that he was seized with sickness in his turn, 
and the queen was obliged to apply the same salve to his wound and to send him a favourable message expressing her desire of his recovery the medicine which the queen administered to these aspiring rivals was successful with both and essex being now allowed the company of his countess and having entertained more promising hopes of his future fortunes was so much restored in his health as to be thought past danger a belief was instilled into elizabeth that his distemper had been entirely counterfeit in order to move her compassion and she relapsed into her former rigour against him he wrote her a letter and sent her a rich present on new year's day as was usual with the courtiers at that time she read the letter but rejected the present after some interval however of severity she allowed him to retire to his own house and though he remained still under custody and was sequestered from all company he was so grateful for this mark of lenity that he sent her a letter of thanks on the occasion this further degree of goodness said he doth sound in my ears as if your majesty spake these words die not essex for though i punish thine offence and humble thee for thy good yet will i one day be served again by thee my prostrate soul makes this answer i hope for that blessed day and in expectation of it all my afflictions of body and mind are humbly patiently and cheerfully borne by me the countess of essex daughter of sir francis walsingham possessed as well as her husband a refined taste in literature and the chief consolation which essex enjoyed during this period of anxiety and expectation consisted in her company and in reading with her those instructive and entertaining authors which even during the time of his greatest prosperity he had never entirely neglected there were several incidents which kept alive the queen's anger against essex every account which she received from ireland convinced her more and more of his misconduct in that government and of the insignificant purposes to which he had employed so much force and treasure tyrone so far from being quelled had thought proper in less than three months to break the truce and joining with o'donnell and other rebels had overrun almost the whole kingdom he boasted that he was certain of receiving a supply of men money and arms from spain he pretended to be champion of the catholic religion and he openly exulted in the present of a phoenix plume which the pope clement the eighth in order to encourage him in the prosecution of so good a cause had consecrated and had conferred upon him the queen that she might check his progress returned to her former intention of appointing mountjoy lord deputy and though that nobleman who was an intimate friend of essex and desired his return to the government of ireland 
did at first very earnestly excuse himself on account of his bad state of health she obliged him to accept the employment mountjoy found the island almost in a desperate condition but being a man of capacity and vigour he was so little discouraged that he immediately advanced against tyrone in ulster he penetrated into the heart of that country the chief seat of the rebels he fortified derry and mount norris in order to bridle the irish he chased them from the field and obliged them to take shelter in the woods and morasses he employed with equal success sir george carew in munster and by these promising enterprises he gave new life to the queen's authority in that island as the comparison of mountjoy's administration with that of essex contributed to alienate elizabeth from her favourite she received additional disgust from the partiality of the people who prepossessed with an extravagant idea of essex's merit complained of the injustice done him by his removal from court and by his confinement libels were secretly dispersed against cecil and raleigh and all his enemies and his popularity which was always great seemed rather to be increased than diminished by his misfortunes elizabeth in order to justify to the public her conduct with regard to him had often expressed her intentions of having him tried in the star chamber for his offences but her tenderness for him prevailed at last over her severity and she was contented to have him only examined by the privy council the attorney-general coke opened the cause against him and treated him with the cruelty and insolence which that great lawyer usually exercised against the unfortunate he displayed in the strongest colours all the faults committed by essex in his administration of ireland his making southampton general of the horse contrary to the queen's injunction his deserting the enterprise against tyrone and marching to leinster and munster his conferring knighthood on too many persons his secret conference with tyrone and his sudden return from ireland in contempt of her majesty's commands he also exaggerated the indignity of the conditions which tyrone had been allowed to propose odious and abominable conditions said he a public toleration of an idolatrous religion pardon for himself and every traitor in ireland and full restitution of lands and possessions to all of them the solicitor-general fleming insisted upon the wretched situation in which the earl had left that kingdom and francis son of sir nicholas bacon who had been lord keeper in the beginning of the present reign closed the charge with displaying the undutiful expressions contained in some letters written by the earl essex when he came to plead in his own defence renounced with great submission and humility all pretensions to an apology and declared his resolution never on this or any other occasion to have any contest with his sovereign he said that having severed himself from the world and abjured all sentiments of ambition 
he had no scruple to confess every failing or error into which his youth folly or manifold infirmities might have betrayed him that his inward sorrow for his offences against her majesty was so profound that it exceeded all his outward crosses and afflictions nor had he any scruple of submitting to a public confession of whatever she had been pleased to impute to him that in his acknowledgments he retained only one reserve which he would never relinquish but with his life the assertion of a loyal and unpolluted heart of an unfeigned affection of an earnest desire ever to perform to her majesty the best service which his pool abilities would permit and that if this sentiment were allowed by the council he willingly acquiesced in any condemnation or sentence which they could pronounce against him this submission was uttered with so much eloquence and in so pathetic a manner that it drew tears from many of the audience all the privy councillors in giving their judgment made no scruple of doing the earl justice with regard to the loyalty of his intentions even cecil whom he believed his capital enemy treated him with regard and humanity and the sentence pronounced by the lord keeper to which the council assented was in these words if this cause said he had been heard in the star chamber my sentence must have been for as great a fine as ever was set upon any man's head in that court together with perpetual confinement in that prison which belongeth to a man of his quality the tower but since we are now in another place and in a course of favour my censure is that the earl of essex is not to execute the office of a councillor nor that of earl marshal of england nor of master of the ordnance and to return to his own house there to continue a prisoner till it shall please her majesty to release this and all the rest of his sentence the earl of cumberland made a slight opposition to this sentence and said that if he thought it would stand he would have required a little more time to deliberate that he deemed it somewhat severe and that any commander-in-chief might easily incur a like penalty but however added he in confidence of her majesty's mercy i agree with the rest the earl of worcester delivered his opinion in a couple of latin verses importing that where the gods are offended even misfortunes ought to be imputed as crimes and that accident is no excuse for transgressions against the divinity bacon so much distinguished afterwards by his high offices and still more by his profound genius for the sciences was nearly allied to the cecil family being nephew to lord burleigh and cousin german to the secretary but notwithstanding his extraordinary talents he had met with so little protection from his powerful relations that he had not yet obtained any preferment in the law which was his profession but essex who could distinguish merit 
and who passionately loved it, had entered into an intimate friendship with Bacon, had zealously attempted, though without success, to procure him the office of solicitor-general, and in order to comfort his friend under the disappointment, had conferred on him a present of land to the value of eighteen hundred pounds. The public could ill excuse Bacon's appearance before the council against so munificent a benefactor, though he acted in obedience to the queen's commands. But she was so well pleased with his behaviour that she imposed on him a new task, of drawing a narrative of that day's proceedings, in order to satisfy the public of the justice and lenity of her conduct. Bacon, who wanted firmness of character more than humanity, gave to the whole transaction the most favourable turn for Essex, and in particular painted out, in elaborate expression, the dutiful submission which that nobleman discovered in the defence that he made for his conduct. When he read the paper to her, she smiled at that passage, and observed to Bacon, that old love she saw could not easily be forgotten. He replied that he hoped she meant that of herself. All the world, indeed, expected that Essex would soon be reinstated in his former credit. Perhaps, as is usual in reconcilements founded on inclination, would acquire an additional ascendant over the queen, and after all his disgraces, would again appear more a favourite than ever. End of section 38, chapter 44, part 2